Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view. An endless field of wildflowers. Or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. A lock of hair that provides a clue to a famous author's bizarre death. Poe was rather delirious, and it seemed to get to the point where he was violent. The sunken space capsule that solves a decades-old puzzle. The sinking of Liberty Bell 7 put a tarnish on what was really a perfect space flight. And a book that outlines a controversial and deadly medical treatment. Anybody who looked at any of those corpses would tell you that they died of malnutrition or starvation. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Located in the small town of Gainesville, Georgia, is the trustee library at Brunel University. Here, among the rows of research texts and rare first editions, is one unusually hefty item whose words are literally written in stone. It is a piece of quartzite. It weighs approximately 21 pounds and bears some writings that are carved into it, and that message is quite unclear. And as teacher Kathy Amos can attest, this arcane inscription lies at the center of one of the country's earliest mysteries, when an entire group of English settlers seemingly vanished. So what is this stone, and what does it reveal about the fate of the pioneers on the lost colony of Roanoke? August 1587. Just off the coast of present-day North Carolina, a group of about 120 men, women, and children are busy erecting shelters on Roanoke Island, the first English settlement in the New World. John White was governor of the island. With him were his daughter, Eleanor Dare, her husband, Ananias Dare, and his grandchild, Virginia Dare, the first English child born in the new world. But as summer draws to a close, White finds his colony in a precarious state, running short on supplies and unable to harvest enough food for the oncoming winter season. The governor is forced to make a critical decision. John had to return to England to resupply the colony. 
So, on August 27th, White set sail for home, promising to return to the colony as quickly as he can. But after arriving back in Europe, he finds England is on the brink of a long war with Spain, and his ship is commandeered until the conflict is over. It's not until three years later, on August 17, 1590, that the governor finally arrives back on the shores of Roanoke Island, desperate to be reunited with his family. But once on land, his hopes are dashed. John White can find no trace of the colony that was there. As a matter of fact, there was nothing left to show that a colony had even been there. How could a settlement of nearly 120 people simply disappear? White scours the surrounding area for clues and soon comes across a tree curiously engraved with three letters. It reads simply, C-R-O. C-R-O seemed to be an indicator of the Croatoan Indians who lived nearby. Could it be a sign that the colonists sought help from the natives and moved to Croatoan Island? Or did a worse fate befall them? Unfortunately, Governor John White would leave the desolate shores of the New World with no answers. The colonists were never found. It seems the fate of the Roanoke colony will stand as one of the most baffling mysteries in history. Then, nearly 350 years later, in 1937, a man named Ellie Hammond is taking a walk through the woods of North Carolina when he stumbles upon this rock. The stone has an inscription on it. It reads, Ananias Dare and Virginia Dare went hence into heaven 1591. It seems that this is a record of the death of Governor John White's son-in-law, Ananias, and his granddaughter, Virginia. When Hammond examines the backside of the stone, he finds another etching, but the remaining words are almost illegible. So he takes it to Dr. Hayward Pierce, Jr., vice president of Brunel University, who arranges for a team of specialists to perform a careful analysis. According to a group of experts, the message, scripted in 16th century Elizabethan English, tells a dark tale of how most of the colonists of Roanoke Island were killed in an attack by a native tribe. And there's one more detail that seems to confirm the stone's authenticity. Engraved at the bottom of the stone were the initials E-W-D. The initials match those of John White's own daughter, Eleanor White Dare. The rock is dubbed the Dare Stone and hailed as the key to unlocking the mystery of what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. But the story doesn't end there. Four years later, in 1941, journalist Boyden Sparks publishes an article in the Saturday Evening Post that makes a startling allegation. He asserts that the celebrated Dare Stone is a fake. Sparks claims that Hammond faked the stone for his own material gain. 
suggesting that he profited from the get-go when Hayward Pierce paid him $1,000 to take possession of his amazing discovery. And adding to the air of suspicion surrounding the stone, when the reporter attempts to track Hammond down, it seems that he has mysteriously disappeared and is never heard from again. L.E. Hammond had dropped off the face of the earth. So was this all just a giant publicity stunt dreamed up by Hammond to earn some cash? And if the stone is a fake, then what really happened to the lost colony of Roanoke? Whether genuine or not, the Dare Stone remains housed at Bernal University's Trustee Library, an imperishable reminder of one of history's most bewildering disappearances. Situated on the shores of the Olympic Peninsula in bucolic western Washington is the Harbor History Museum. Here, fishing nets, ship wheels, and boats chronicle the rich maritime history that helped build the state's coastal communities. But beyond the nautical paraphernalia is a seemingly innocuous object that author Greg Olson knows has a grim history. The artifact is faded green. It is small, maybe the size of a slice of bread, and it has gold lettering on it. This simple hardback book is a medical manual that celebrates the benefits of a radical therapeutic treatment. But instead of aid and alleviation, the pages of this tome lay out a prescription for agony and death. So who wrote it? And what part did it play in one of the most unusual and sinister scandals of the 20th century? Seattle, Washington, 1908. America's gateway to the Pacific is a thriving port city, attracting throngs of people nationwide yearning to make their fortunes on the West Coast. One of these transplants is Dr. Linda Hazard, who has come to the city from Minnesota. Here, she quickly establishes a medical practice that is based on her own unique brand of healing. Linda Hazard was all about the fasting treatment, which was basically getting all the toxins out of your body. To attract patients to her treatment facility, Dr. Hazard pens this revolutionary medical manifesto called Fasting for the Cure of Disease. In it, she advocates foregoing almost all food in favor of an extreme diet, consisting mainly of small amounts of tomato broth and juice. With book in hand, she takes to the streets, preaching her unconventional practice that she argues will heal virtually any ailment, from a toothache to cancer. Soon, a steady stream of believers starts rolling into the doctor's office. But over the course of the next three years, Linda Hazard's miracle cure seems to yield some frightening results. By 1911, over 20 of her patients have perished, an unusually high number given that most people under her care suffered from only minor illnesses. But despite the mounting death tolls, Dr. Hazard stands resolutely by her methods. Dr. Hazard always wrote that they died of some cirrhosis of the liver or a bad heart or something. Some skeptics do voice their concerns, but authorities say they can't intervene because her patients all willingly submit to treatment. So are Dr. Hazard's patients dying of natural causes like she claims, or from something more sinister?
It's 1911. In Washington state, Dr. Linda Hazard has been peddling a peculiar medical treatment that she claims will remedy all manner of diseases. The name of this cure-all? Fasting. The only problem is that a suspiciously high number of patients have been dying. Now, the doctor insists that the fatalities are unrelated to a radical method. But what is really going on at Dr. Hazard's clinic? On February 27th, sisters Claire and Dorothea Williamson arrive at Linda Hazard's Seattle office, carrying a copy of her book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease. The two women, heiresses to a vast British fortune, suffer from minor ailments such as abdominal and knee pain, conditions that are decidedly not life-threatening. Hazard looks at them and says, we don't have a second to waste. I need to put you on this fast immediately. The sisters follow the doctor's strict diet regimen for the next two months, consuming only a small amount of broth and orange juice each day. And like so many of Hazard's patients, they soon succumb to a horrifying fate. By June, Claire Williamson is dead, and Dorothea is little more than skin and bones. Outraged, the Williamson family seeks the help of local authorities, who finally agree to launch an investigation. What they uncover is startling. Over and over, Hazard would acquire control of her patients' finances, including the Williamson sisters, taking advantage of their weakened and delirious states. The girls change their will. They leave all of their assets, their properties, and even their diamonds to Linda Hazard. She was stealing money from people as they died. Dr. Hazard would say, you're so weak right now, I don't think you can manage your business affairs. I need to be in charge. Perhaps even more shocking, it seems the so-called doctor was not a doctor at all. She had no actual proof of where she went to school or any records. With this evidence in hand, authorities finally arrest the fraudulent physician. On February 4, 1912, after being tried in a Washington courtroom, Linda Hazard is convicted of manslaughter in the death of Claire Williamson. She only serves a year and a half in prison. But justice is eventually served when Hazard takes a dose of her own medicine. In 1938, we're not really sure what exactly was ailing her, but she got very weak and she announced to the world, I'm going to prove my cure once and for all. I'm going to take my fast, it's going to bring me out of this, and I'm going to live. But after a 38-day fast, Linda Hazard died. And today, the book that inspired so many to seek out Linda Hazard's fasting cure remains shelved at the Harbor History Museum, a disturbing reminder of one woman's nefarious practices and the hopelessly devoted followers who fell prey to her wicked scheme. The Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. is home to a host of eclectic artifacts, including Thomas Jefferson's Bible and one of the capital city's first electric streetcars. But sitting atop a wooden pallet in storage is a mysterious six-foot-tall black metal column. According to David Allison, it represents an unparalleled achievement in modern technology. Its internal components are little modules that work together to process millions of instructions per second. This is a supercomputer 
designed to be one of the fastest and most specialized of its kind. But it wasn't made for launching missiles or sending a man to the moon. So what role did this computer play in an epic battle of man versus machine? Philadelphia, February 1996. World chess champion Garry Kasparov is getting ready to face off against his most unusual opponent to date. Not a fellow human being, but an IBM supercomputer dubbed Deep Blue. Deep Blue was designed only to play chess. Its main way of playing chess was to evaluate systematically a chess piece moved here, what might the opponent do? So it treated chess as a strict problem of probability and mathematical evaluation of different possible moves. But in the six-game series, Deep Blue, operated by the computer's engineers, wins just one contest against the chess legend. But even that is a giant accomplishment. No computer has ever beaten a world champion under tournament conditions. IBM's ambitions, though, are even greater. They didn't want to win just one game. They wanted to win an entire match. So the engineers raced to make improvements to Deep Blue before a planned rematch with Kasparov in New York City the following year. By the time Kasparov takes his place at the chessboard on May 3, 1997, Deep Blue is a far more powerful machine. Deep Blue could calculate over 200 million chess positions a second, so it really had an incredibly powerful capability. But after his previous victory, Kasparov himself doesn't believe that a computer will ever be able to be programmed to think as critically as a human. And in the first of six games, he is proved right. The champion takes the lead, one to zero. But in the second game, Deep Blue plays far more tactically and pulls off a surprising win. Then, after Game 3 ends in a draw, Kasparov reveals his growing suspicions at a press conference, stating that the computer is beginning to act less like a machine and more like an intelligent human being. I think it's time for Deep Blue to prove that that was not a single event it could play. His shocking allegation prompts the question, could one of Deep Blue's engineers be helping the supercomputer decide which moves to make? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's May 1997. In New York City, world chess champion Garry Kasparov faces off against supercomputer Deep Blue. After three games, man and machine are tied at one win each and a draw. But a skeptical Kasparov is suspicious as to who his opponent really is. Are Deep Blue's moves the strategy of a computer, or is the machine being manipulated by the engineer operating it? The Deep Blue team is stunned by Kasparov's accusations of cheating. 
The computer, they say, is just a very advanced machine. Tension between both camps skyrockets, but the series goes on. And after two more draws, it's now down to the sixth and final game. Whoever wins this round will be declared the victor. Kasparov is clearly feeling the pressure. Most people thought that Kasparov made a mistake in his opening, and Deep Blue was able to exploit that mistake in its methodical way of evaluating moves. After just 19 moves, a quick game at world champion level, a visibly distressed Kasparov concedes defeat and walks away from the table. Deep Blue has won. But is it a fair win? Could Kasparov's allegations of cheating have been true? After the match, Kasparov was upset and really wanted to investigate why he had lost. He wanted to play a rematch. He wanted to recover his reputation. But the Deep Blue team has achieved what it set out to do, beat a world champion. And seeing no reason for a rematch, the computer's engineers disassemble much of the machine's circuitry. They never let Deep Blue play chess again. And without evidence to confirm Kasparov's assertions, whether or not the Deep Blue team cheated remains a mystery. Fifteen years later, Deep Blue's legacy lives on at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, documenting a pivotal moment when man's own creation may have legitimately beaten him at his own game. Located on the grounds of West Virginia's luxurious Greenbrier Hotel is the President's Cottage Museum, a shrine commemorating the 26 American heads of state who have visited this palatial resort. But far removed from the timeless photos and elegant paintings sits one particularly pedestrian artifact that, according to tour manager Linda Walls, tells a riveting tale of power and paranoia in a world on the brink of destruction. This may look like an old, ordinary television, but now we know this object represents something much, much bigger, something very top secret. So what insight does this common appliance provide into one of the most dramatic and intriguing episodes in our nation's history? West Virginia, 1958. Deep in the heart of the Allegheny Mountains lies the elegant Greenbrier Hotel, a popular destination with Washington insiders and even President Dwight Eisenhower. On December 12th, the high-profile getaway announces plans for the construction of an opulent new wing, featuring 88 new guest rooms and an underground exhibit hall. It could be used by the guests for exhibits and also for parties, for huge dinner functions. In late December, a crew breaks ground on the project, excavating a hole for the building's foundation. And by the spring of 1959, the workers have carved out a massive cavity in the earth, roughly the size of two football fields stacked underground. Soon, an endless procession of trucks arrives, hauling an astonishing 50,000 tons of concrete to the cavernous site. As you would guess, there were whispers about this project. People said, what are they building? 
because there was a huge amount of square footage that was unknown. Adding to the speculation, it's revealed that a few select workers charged with hanging gigantic steel doors at underground entrances have been vetted by the FBI and forced to sign non-disclosure agreements about their involvement in the project. Some of the local gossip said there was something here for the government. Finally, in October 1962, the new annex, dubbed the West Virginia Wing, opens its doors. It was beautifully, beautifully done. There was the exhibit hall, the mountaineer room, good theater-style conference rooms. And there is also a new office set up to tend to one important guest amenity. There was a television repair shop that maintained all of the Greenbrier's televisions. For the next 30 years, the West Virginia Wing becomes a boon for the Greenbrier, playing host to hundreds of events and entertaining thousands of guests. And eventually, the rumors surrounding the addition become a distant memory. Then, in 1992, a journalist named Ted Gupp is researching the history of the Cold War and how the United States would have handled the fallout from a nuclear catastrophe. In the course of his investigation, a political insider tips him off to an ongoing covert government operation being carried out at the Greenbrier Hotel's West Virginia wing. What clandestine activity could this exclusive resort possibly be concealing? It's 1958. At the Greenbrier Hotel, an upscale retreat in the mountains of West Virginia, construction begins on a new wing and an underground exhibit hall. But the high level of security that surrounds the project soon gives rise to rumors that the resort is part of a top-secret government operation. It's over 30 years before an investigative reporter finally stumbles upon the truth. On May 31, 1992, Journalist Ted Gupp publishes a shocking article in the Washington Post that lifts the shroud of mystery that surrounds the Greenbrier Hotel's West Virginia wing. Interviews with various construction contractors, hotel executives, and former government officials confirm rumors that began spreading back in the 1950s. Leading from the Greenbrier into the exhibit hall was a false wall or a cover door. And no one knew that behind this cover door was an 18-ton blast door. This door could have been closed, sealing the huge bunker. This extraordinary bunker, kept secret for over 30 years, is revealed to be a 153-room nuclear fallout shelter built as a safeguard for the 535 members of the United States Congress in case of nuclear attack. During the period of the Cold War, President Eisenhower had bunkers built to ensure that our government would have continued in the event of an emergency. The Greenbrier was chosen as one location for this because it's nestled in the mountains within a 250-mile radius of Washington, D.C. In addition to its strategic and secluded location, This enormous refuge, buried 720 feet into a hillside, 
houses all the conveniences of life above ground. There were 18 dormitories. There was a huge communications area, a huge infirmary, complete with operating rooms, and a huge power plant. And thousands of guests have been in the conference rooms. Little did they know that they were actually seated in rooms that would have been used as chambers for the House of Representatives and for the Senate. But the question remains, how did the United States government maintain this immense bunker without the hotel staff catching on? The answer lies in an object so mundane and ordinary, it provided the perfect cover. The people who were running the bunker were disguised as television repairmen, but they were actually employees of the United States government. Many of them were individuals with military experience. They maintained this bunker on a daily basis and ensured that all of the equipment in the power plant and all of the communications equipment was in ready condition. Following the expose in the Washington Post, the U.S. government ceases operations at the shelter. After three decades, the television repairmen leave their posts, and the bunker is made open to the public for tours. But today, the Greenbrier Hotel still clings to this old television set, one last vestige left behind by the men who worked behind the scenes to ensure the government's stability in time of crisis. The Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, Maryland, contains a prized collection devoted to one of America's most revered writers, Edgar Allan Poe. Books, portraits, and a life-size bust commemorate the innovative author's illustrious career. But deep within the archives, secured in a vault, lies one peculiar relic that has a strong personal attachment to the poet's roots. This is a lock of hair from the head of Edgar Allan Poe, taken from him the day after his death. And as State Library Resource Manager Jeff Corman knows, these long brown locks are forever linked to the author's final chapter, a harrowing series of events in which life tragically imitated art. So what can this tuft of hair tell us about the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe? It's the mid-1800s. Edgar Allan Poe is at the height of his literary career, having penned chilling and macabre tales such as The Raven, The Black Cat, and The Pit and the Pendulum. The prolific author has established himself as a household name. But his popularity is not without controversy. Commonly, people believe that Poe may have been an alcoholic. He is also rumored to have dabbled with opium, suffered bouts of madness, and been prone to womanizing. But little does anyone know, the infamous writer is about to meet an untimely demise. September 1849. Edgar Allan Poe is traveling north by train from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia on a business trip stopping in Baltimore, Maryland along the way. He checked his trunk at a hotel, but the next four or five days are really a mystery. Then, on October 3rd, 
the celebrated author is found slumped in an alley next to a local tavern, disheveled and disoriented. He's rushed to Washington University Hospital, where he is treated by lead physician Dr. J.J. Moran. He is in and out of consciousness, and much of the time he is awake, he is delirious. On the fourth day, he dies. He was 40 years old. The official cause of death is given as congestion of the brain, an ambiguous term used to describe anything from a stroke to meningitis. But such a vague diagnosis leaves the mourning public demanding answers, prompting a host of theories about the writer's downfall. And speculation soon turns to one of Poe's vices. Some postulate that he collapsed in the street as a result of a week-long drinking binge, a victim of alcohol poisoning. But without any evidence, the poet's fate remains shrouded in mystery. Then, in 1999, the 150th anniversary of Poe's death prompts a team of scientists in Washington, D.C. to reopen the case. With technology available, it was possible to test for what types of things would have been found in Poe's body. And this lock of the poet's hair, preserved at the time of his passing and now archived at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, provides the perfect testing ground for what might have been in his system at the moment of his sudden and untimely demise. So, after a century and a half, will the true cause of Edgar Allan Poe's death finally be revealed? In October of 1849, author Edgar Allan Poe was found collapsed in a Baltimore alleyway. Four days later, he died. But no one could figure out why. A century and a half later, a team of scientists thinks it may have finally found the key to unlocking this baffling mystery. Washington, D.C., 1999. The group of experts runs a battery of tests on the strands of Poe's hair, preserved after his passing. This will reveal any toxins that could have been in the writer's system at the time of his death. Among the substances doctors search for are heavy metals, including mercury, arsenic, uranium, and perhaps most importantly, lead. At that time, there was a good deal of lead that might have been used in the production of alcohol. If high amounts of lead are found in his hair, it's a strong indication that the author may indeed have died from alcohol poisoning. But the results prove surprising. There just was not much lead found in the hair samples. So alcohol was not a contributing factor as had been theorized over the last 150 years. So if Poe didn't fall prey to alcohol, what did kill him? Some believe the answer lies in another artifact hidden within the archives of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. A letter written by Dr. J.J. Moran, the physician who tended to Poe while he was ill in the hospital. Dr. Moran claims that during the time that Poe was in the hospital, he was rather delirious. And it seemed to get almost to the point where he was violent. 
Dr. Moran also notes that Poe had rapid changes in body temperature and great difficulty drinking water. All of these symptoms suggest a shocking new theory. Rabies. Rabies is a deadly viral disease that can be easily transmitted through direct contact with a variety of infected animals, including some of Poe's favorite creatures. It's fairly well known that Poe did have some affection for cats. Leading some to speculate that Poe could have contracted rabies from one of his own pet cats. But without testing his tissue or saliva, this new theory is impossible to prove, leaving the cause of Edgar Allan Poe's death an enduring mystery. And today, at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, these strands of hair preserve the memory of a literary genius whose death, like his finest works of fiction, remains eerie and bizarre. Supersonic jets, ballistic missiles, and NASA rockets. These are just a few of the gravity-defying creations on display at the Kansas Cosmosphere and Space Center in the prairie city of Hutchinson. Here, occupying center stage in the early spaceflight gallery is a large dark blue structure that, according to collections manager Meredith Miller, is the museum's most prized possession. This artifact is a bell-shaped piece of metal. It has an interior made up of switches and wires, and it was meant to bring America one step closer to the moon. But instead, this early spacecraft fell to the depths of the ocean floor, almost taking its precious human cargo with it. What mission was this capsule from? And what went so terribly wrong? May 5th, 1961, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Just three weeks after Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man to reach space, American Alan Shepard blasts off in the Freedom 7 capsule. His 15-minute suborbital flight is a roaring success. And the race to the moon is on. Eager to stay one step ahead of the Soviet Union, NASA immediately begins planning a second suborbital flight and commissions a new vessel for the mission. Named Liberty Bell 7, this state-of-the-art spacecraft is outfitted with a number of new features. In addition to a reconfigured control panel, the capsule sports a newly designed exit hatch held in place by 70 bolts that would be released by a controlled explosive charge set off by the astronaut himself. NASA felt that it was a superior design to the Freedom 7. At 7.30 a.m. on July 21st, Liberty Bell 7 and the veteran astronaut chosen to helm the mission, Gus Grissom, are blasted into suborbital space. Everything went perfectly, and after 15 minutes, the capsule landed on the Atlantic Ocean. Pronouncing the mission a resounding triumph, NASA launches a rescue unit to retrieve Grissom and the Liberty Bell 7, who are miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. The plan is for Grissom to blow the hatch and exit onto a raft, only after a helicopter has attached a cable to lift the capsule safely above the water. But before the chopper is able to secure the line, something goes horribly wrong. All of the sudden, the hatch exploded off of the capsule. 
As the Liberty Bell 7 starts to take on water, it begins sinking below the surface, and Grissom quickly hauls himself out. Now, both the astronaut and his vessel are in danger of getting pulled underwater. After several agonizing minutes, a second helicopter swoops in to rescue a flailing Grissom. As he is hoisted to safety, the first recovery chopper struggles to lift the Liberty Bell out of the ocean. But the now flooded spacecraft proves to be too heavy a load, and the pilot has no choice but to cut the capsule loose. Within moments, all of the valuable research material and film inside the spacecraft is lost to the ocean floor. The sinking of Liberty Bell 7 put a kind of tarnish on what was really a perfect spaceflight. With the mission labeled by many as a near disaster, the million-dollar question becomes, why did the Liberty Bell 7's hatch blow prematurely, sinking the priceless spacecraft? On July 21, 1961, NASA blasted astronaut Gus Grissom 100 miles into suborbital space. While the launch and the 15-minute flight went off without a hitch, the landing was a disaster. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the spacecraft's hatch blew open too early. As a result, the capsule filled with water and sank, nearly taking Grissom with it. So what went wrong? NASA is determined to figure out what happened, but it won't be so easy. They didn't have the capsule to do an investigation. They didn't have the hatch to look at. All they had was Grissom's recollection of what had happened in those moments. While Grissom says the hatch suddenly opened on its own, some engineers and members of the press question whether the astronaut actually hit the hatch trigger too early either accidentally or because he panicked. But with Liberty Bell 7 and all physical evidence lost at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, it seems the cause of this catastrophe will forever remain a mystery. That is, until July 20th, 1999. With the help of advanced radars, underwater explorer Kurt Newport makes history when he locates the Liberty Bell 7 and has the long-lost capsule transported to the Kansas Cosmosphere and Space Center. While the spacecraft's hatch door is still missing, upon close inspection, the experts notice something unusual about the frame to which it was bolted. It was slightly bent on one side, and they believed that that was probably due to the impact of the capsule on the water. And that slight bend in the frame could have been what set the hatch off and set into motion the sinking of Liberty Bell 7. This new evidence suggests that the loss of the capsule may not have been Gus Grissom's fault after all. But this finding comes too late for the astronaut, whose life in 1967 would be cut short. In a tragic twist of fate, a redesigned exit hatch puts a fatal end to Grissom's Apollo 1 mission before it even begins. The Apollo 1 hatch actually had to be opened from the outside by a crew, and the astronauts couldn't do it from the inside. During a routine test prior to flight, there was a fire that started within the capsule, and Grissom and his fellow astronauts could not escape. 
The crew died within moments of the fire starting. But today, Grissom's legacy lives on at the Kansas Cosmosphere and Space Center, where the Liberty Bell 7 remains on display, a battered symbol of the highs and lows in America's quest to conquer the final frontier. From a supercomputer to a sunken capsule, vanishing settlers to starving patients. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. 